0: On Halloween night 1972 on the outskirts of San Antonio, the congregants of Castle Hills Baptist held a bonfire in the parking lot of their suburban church. It wasn't a celebration. It was an act of spiritual warfare. They had it on good authority that the world's most powerful witches were gathering in the nearby hills for a black mass, possibly the largest and most sinister such ritual ever held. The church's bonfire was all at once a show of force, a counter-attack, and a preemptive strike against the forces of darkness and devilry that had invaded their fine city on this most wicked of nights. And those righteous flames, towering some 12 feet into the night sky, had been built, kindled, and fed on the pages of books. The servants of God had amassed all the works of the serpent. His textbooks, his left-wing leaflets, his comic books, pornography, and rock and roll albums, all of it and cast their filth into the cleansing flames, filling the valley with light and vanquishing the enemy at their gates, for now.
1: A month or two after the Castle Hills book burning, Texas Monthly journalist Gregory Curtis interviewed the church's minister, Malcolm Granger, about what happened that night and why. There's been signs something was gonna happen in San Antonio for a long time. Earlier that summer, a 28-year-old man named John Todd had come to the church claiming to be a quote, former grand druid, one of the 10 or so highest ranking witches in the United States. He said he'd recently escaped his satanic coven after a Christian movie convinced him he'd been led astray. His firsthand knowledge of the devil's inner circle compelled him to come to Castle Hills with his prophecy and a warning. A great and terrible darkness was descending on San Antonio and the signs were everywhere if you knew where to look. Local high school students, some of whom were attending this very church, had been sneaking out to the hills at night to sacrifice dogs to the devil and drink their blood. As the devil's birthday, Halloween, drew near. Witches from all over the world were gathering their forces in the city, including Church of Satan founder Anton LaVey, a powerful voodoo priest from Brazil, some high-ranking officials from the Vatican, and radical feminist group The Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell, or Witch. The plan was to erect a building in the hills made entirely of bulletproof glass that would serve as the new international headquarters of witchcraft, and its completion would mark the advent of the Antichrist.
0: I was skeptical at first, the preacher admitted,
1: but i prayed with him and I've heard him testify. There are too many other things happening that all point to this. John even has a scar on his arm from the time he sealed a covenant with Satan in his own blood.
0: He pulled a folder from his file drawer and spread its contents across the desk for the reporter to examine mostly clippings from a recent issue of The Village Voice, anything that made reference to the sort of things they'd burned in the fire. Meditation, astrology, drugs, R-rated movies, and an ad for the TV sitcom Bewitched, which the preacher found particularly disturbing. Alongside all of that was an issue of the popular DC comic book New Gods. The preacher carefully opened it to a well-worn dog-eared page and tapped his fingertip on an illustration of some villainous creature's contorted face. This, he said, This is very close." The church youth minister appeared in the office doorway, so the preacher invited her in to elucidate the ways in which the coming darkness had already begun manifesting itself in children. Any childhood difficulties, anger, frustration, disobedience, can be attributed to demon possession. She said, We can pray and get rid of the demon, but it doesn't do any good if that child goes right back to a house where devils exist. When the rumors of dog sacrifice first surfaced, one of the girls in her ministry tearfully confessed to having attended one of these rituals and offered as penance a list of the other students that she claimed were involved. The church gave the list of names to the school's principal, who then passed it along to the kid's parents. This seems like a good time to mention that earlier in the interview, and seemingly apropos of nothing, the preacher casually told the reporter, Cotton Mather hadn't been all wrong. The good Reverend Mather, of course, having been an orchestrator of the Salem Witch Trials. Humanism, science, rationalism, the preacher said, spitting out the words like they were stuck in his teeth. They're really the work of the devil. You see, because they
1: tell us not to believe in devils. And that makes us all the more susceptible to them.
0: We probably don't need to tell you this, but there was no all-star witch convention held in the San Antonio Hills that Halloween night. But there had been a gathering of cultists, channeling otherworldly powers and casting their enemies' most sacred accoutrements into the ravenous flames of a bonfire, one they'd built in the parking lot of their own suburban church.
1: Maybe John Todd was lying or delusional, or maybe he was telling the truth and the Satanists just changed their plans at the last minute. Whatever it was, the preacher believed him. And why shouldn't he? The prophecy was merely a confirmation of what he'd already long suspected and deeply feared. And when he passed the stranger's message along to his flock, they believed it too. And why wouldn't they? He was a trusted authority figure in their community. And besides, they could see the omens for themselves, plain as day, every time they turned on the TV or perused the village voice. Every form of media they touched was laced with the same wicked poison that, for years, festered within the rotten husk of American culture, a culture that was becoming more and more alien and frightening to them with every passing day.
0: But in a way, they were right a great and terrible darkness was descending, one that traveled on a whisper through the ear of a friend of a friend who has it on very good authority that everyone thinks so, don't you agree? You do agree, don't you? Margaret Atwood once said, a word after a word after a word is power, and to badly paraphrase Isaac Asimov, a story sufficiently well told is indistinguishable from a spell well cast. We all know the incantations by heart, The rituals and abracadabras required to enchant and to curse. The words we say, the rumors we spread, the lies we tell. Every one of us has the power to conjure real demons into this world. And sometimes, the only difference between fact and fantasy is a simple majority opinion. Like the old saying goes, speak of the devil and, well, you know. I'm Ryan Sheffield. And I'm Brad Dewar. And this, is Texarkana. I wanna die easy when I die I wanna
1: die easy when I die I wanna die easy when I die Screams will shone as
0: a fly
1: he checked it was august 22nd 1979 and william deer picked up the phone on the first ring
0: mr deer this is dr melvin gross
1: deer knew the guy but he didn't
0: know the guy
1: you know local urologist separated by a few degrees of secretaries and somebody's sister maybe they'd bumped gums once or twice at some dallas society fleeing uptown who knows what's up doc
0: it's my nephew in college he's gone missing
1: Doc says the family's worried that the cops'll bungle things and just write off the loss. And hell, who could blame him? East Lansing's finest waited five whole days to even tell him the kid was gone. They needed their own set of eyes on the case, and they'd heard it through the grapevine that William C. Deere, P.I., was the man to call. So here they were.
0: Deer leaned back in his chair and thumbed one of the gold rings he wore on nearly every finger.
1: You got my attention, Doc. What's the story?
0: James Dallas Egbert III. Everybody calls him Dallas. Smart kid, a prodigy even. Only 16 years old and already a sophomore at Michigan State U. Big time computer whiz, which is saying something in 79. Last seen seven days ago. Had lunch with a friend, went back to his dorm room alone. Nobody's seen him since. The cops searched the dorm and turned up a notebook, handwritten poetry, some pretty dark stuff, but nothing out of the ordinary for any sad sack teen with a diary. But then there's the note.
1: To whom it may concern, should my body be found, I wish it to be cremated.
0: Beyond that, nada no leads no witnesses and nobody's talking your average cop or lesser private dick might have seen this case and said open and damn near shut depressed kid genius feels out of step with the world too young to fit in at college too weird to fake it and make it just gives up the ghost takes a fast way out tragic sure but not exactly rare still the family didn't think it was the type could be a runaway wouldn't be unheard of at that age. Kid could be in Vegas right now for all they know, scamming free buds off the penny slots and wondering just why the hell anyone went to college in the first place. Cheers and more power to him. But something didn't smell right. It was too simple, too typical. Deer had a hunch that there might be more to the story. And when William Deer's gut says dig, you best grab a shovel.
1: It had been 14 years since he left his job as a Florida highway patrolman and moved to Texas to dip toe in the sleuth biz. And lately he'd been getting a reputation as a go-to gumshoe for missing persons cases when the cops hit a dead end, dropped the ball, or intentionally let their grip slip. Still, he'd been holding out a long time now for his white whale, that one big case that could finally bump his rep up to the majors. He was a born heavy hitter, and he knew that better than he knew his own mug in the mirror. All he needed was a chance at bat, And this one? Well, let's just say he had a hunch. I'll take the case, doc. We'll be in touch. With a few loose ends to tie up at home, it'd be just another week before deer could hop a plane up to Michigan. By the time his loafers hit the tarmac, James Dallas Egbert III had been missing for 15 days. First things first, get the local press on the horn and tip him off. Within hours, there were carloads of journalists, the real bloodhound types, waiting outside his motel, ready to follow him into action at a moment's notice, hoping for a feel-good headline, but happy to settle for a carcass to swarm. It was one of Deer's go-to tactics. When you've got an army of scoop-starved vultures pulling up the rear, uncooperative authorities tend to lose their taste for pushback. Or at least, that's what he'd told any sucker who asked. Truth is, he never met a camera he didn't like and his reputation owed a lot to having that throng of muckrakers on site to witness his every victory. Second thing second, start asking questions. He interviewed students and faculty all over campus, but hardly any of them knew the kid. The ones who did described him as a shy, awkward kid. Skinny, fragile, few friends, fewer dates. Seemed like gadgets and gizmos came natural to him, but social skills, not so much.
0: When all was said and done, Deere had three potential leads to go on. Number one, Dallas was an active member in the campus organization for gay students, which in 1979 wasn't something most kids were home about. The kid's sex life was nobody's business, of course, but it raised a few hypotheticals. A violent run in with some gay bashers, maybe just an excuse to fly the coop and start a new life somewhere, or sadly, statistically, the probability of suicide. Number two, the kid had a thing for dope. Pot and powder mostly, but rumor had it he'd been using his chemistry skills to cook up his own supply of PCP. Street name? Angel Dust. Maybe a drug deal gone south. Maybe he went underground to scale up his operation. Or maybe a local gang was just looking for a new dope cook. Any of that was plausible. But then there was number three. Apparently Dallas was obsessed with that genre stuff, you know, sci-fi, fantasy, that kind of thing. Books, comics, movies, you name it. But especially this one particular board game. It had been around for five years or so, but Deer had never heard of it. It wasn't exactly the kind of thing you found at the toy store next to HiHoChairio. You had to mail order a copy or, if you were lucky, snag one at the big comic book shop downtown. The name of the game was Dungeons and Dragons, or DD for kids in the know. Most students he talked to couldn't tell him much about it, only that it was some kind of role-playing game. Sort of like play pretend for poindexters. They said kids played it in small secretive groups and even got dressed up in costumes to go down into the steam tunnels beneath the campus, acting like it was a medieval dungeon or some such thing. It's one thing to homebrew your own PCP, but this, this was something else. And once again, William Deere's gut said dig.
1: So he swung by the local comic shop and asked the clerk for every dungeon and or dragon they had in stock. When the guy came back with an armful of hardbound books and a bag full of wacky looking dice, he realized he might need to recruit a little help on this one. So Deer approached some gamers in the back of the store, wallet in hand, a cold hard Jackson for anybody willing and able to come back to his motel room and give him the Cliff Notes rundown of D&D. After a long, confusing, and boring night of what felt an awful lot like calling yourself Merlin while doing your taxes, Deer reckoned he got the gist of the thing. Next thing's next, search the dorm for any clues the cops might have missed. Right away, a corkboard on the wall caught his eye. Nothing on it. No notes, no shopping list. just a couple dozen pushpins all clustered together, a little too evenly spaced to not be deliberate. Like the kid was trying to make a shape, or maybe a message out of the pins. Or a map. Then it hit him like a ton of bricks. The tunnels. He asked the maintenance guy to rustle up a blueprint of the tunnel network, and bingo, the pushpins lined up perfect. Or close to perfect, or close enough, more or less, if you tilt your head and squint. The staff was reluctant to have him snooping around down there but that's what the reporters were for. Surely, the school wouldn't want news getting out that they were obstructing an investigation into the disappearance of one of their own students. And just like that, the maintenance guy was off to fetch the keys.
0: They scoured every twist, turn, and dead end of the tunnel system, but found no sign of the missing kid, aside from a blanket, some old milk, and a handful of crackers. To Deere, it was definitive proof that Dallas had been down there. But East Lansing's finest weren't exactly bowled over by a couple of saltines, and worse, his loyal horde of journalists was starting to lose interest. Deer knew he had to give them something, or else they were going to get bored and jump ship. The kid's sex life and drug problem would have been front page stuff for sure, but if they didn't end up being relevant to his disappearance, it just wouldn't be fair to spill the beans on the poor kid like that. So Deer turned out his pockets for the only bone he had left to throw. See, there's this game
1: called Dungeons and Dragons,
0: or D&D for kids in the know. And now the muckrakers were all ears. For those of you who don't know, D&D mostly involves sitting around a table with a bunch of dice and pencils, something Deer probably should have noticed during his Crash Course game session at the motel room. But, for whatever reason, he decided to tell his rapt audience of reporters that d and involved dressing up in costumes, hanging out in steam tunnels, and believing you'd literally become the character that you were playing. In some instances, he added,
1: when a person plays the game, you actually leave your body and go
0: out of your mind. Sure, the reporters were basically drooling on their notepads, but Deere's selective and deeply inaccurate leak backfired on him. As far as the muckrakers were concerned, they had their story. They were done here, and they ditched them on the spot to go crank up the presses. The cops were only hanging around as a formality, and the campus staff couldn't wait to be rid of them. Deer was alone, and Dallas was still missing. As soon as the morning papers hit the stands, the rumors and theories were already swirling. Some teenagers call it. D&D. They call it role-playing, but what role does the occult play Deems in this tragic disappearance? Dragons. I understand that he's a college, he's still 16 Was years old. Kidnapping How is he getting his hands on this kind of material, and why is this kind of material being sold? Intellectual but I got asked if my question is going as be as a educator as Bender a father as to minister an is to what prove role then
1: worthy of the is advanced version of the game. It appears to well, be a full game, the, for God, a very complex or rules, behind the uh, fantasy
0: special polycoded deity of Satin? Yeah. Violence, the occult. The question now is where's rest the cult?
1: The publisher TSR Games could only dream of D&D becoming a household name overnight, but not like this. With the sudden onslaught of negative press, the company felt pressured to respond, but rather than address the concerned public at large, they opted to publish a page-long piece in niche hobby magazine, The Dragon, and it wasn't your standard corporate PR damage control. The statement was a direct appeal to their players and fans, and a warning.
0: This incident could conceivably affect each of you who reads this if the bizarre tag sticks, all of us should consider the idea that we might meet with scorn or macabre fascination or be branded as intellectual loonies in the media. For now, we can only hope and pray that James will be located and in good health. No game is worth dying for."
1: They had no idea at the time just how prescient that warning would turn out to be. The media knew good and well that headlines about some missing teen in Michigan wouldn't exactly fly off the national newsstands but a dangerous, possibly even satanic, board game you've never heard of? One that causes psychotic breaks and troubled kids? That lures its victims into dark sewer tunnels never to return? A game that your own children might be playing this very moment? Now that sells papers. James Dallas Egbert III was becoming an afterthought, nothing more than a footnote in the media's hack and slash corporate melee, and a non-player character in a massive multiplayer game of hysterical make-believe.
0: So when Deer finally tracked the kid down in Louisiana on September 13th, 1979, a month after he'd first disappeared, it barely registered as news. Deer said he found him,
1: Tired and crying on a cot in a small room in an old building between uh, two storefronts.
0: Shortly after Dallas was released into the custody of his uncle, the doctor, back in Texas, the kid met up with Deer over lunch to fill in the blanks. Feeling overburdened by his parents' expectations, his depression, anxiety, sexuality, Dallas spent nine months trying to decide whether to run away or simply end his life. And the day he disappeared was the day he finally made up his mind. After lunch with his friend, he left the pushpin map and the note in his dorm, then snuck down into the tunnels with the blanket and crackers and a bottle of sleeping pills. But they weren't strong enough to do the job, and he woke up a day later. After a couple of weeks spent couch surfing with acquaintances, he ended up in New Orleans where he checked into a motel room and downed a cocktail of root beer and toxic chemicals. And once again, he woke up disappointed. It's unclear who convinced him to call the detective at 1.30 in the morning, but William Deere answered the phone on the first ring. So here they were. Turns out Deere's hunches, as usual, had been right on the money. Or at least that's what he claims. Dallas never shared those details with anyone else, not even his own family, who to this day dispute Deere's sensational telling of the events. But Deere's version of the story, as laid out in his best-selling book, The Dungeon Master, is the only one we have to go on. James Dallas Egbert III never got a chance to tell his own story, if he even wanted it told at all. Exactly one year and one day after disappearing down into the steam tunnels, he put a gun to his head and let in the daylight.
1: Deere was, and is, an unreliable narrator, but his book still presents a much more nuanced and rational account than anything the average American got from the nightly newscast or the morning paper. But the book wouldn't hit the shelves until five years after the fact, and that turned out to be five years too late. In 1981, less than a year after Dallas's death, popular author Rona Jaffe published Mazes and Monsters, a fictional novel loosely based on his disappearance, very loosely. And as far as understanding the game goes, let's just say Jaffe probably hadn't bribed any nerds for an educational motel game sesh. Mazes and Monsters was little more than an airport bookstore cash grab, capitalizing on the same fear and ignorance the media had been milking nonstop since William Deere first uttered the name D&D into some journalist tape recorder. Still, the book was a big hit, and a year later it was adapted into a CBS, made-for-TV movie starring a young Tom Hanks in his first-ever dramatic leading role. It's on Amazon Prime right now if you're curious, and it's something. With mazes and monsters rerunning non-stop on a network channel that everyone got for free, it didn't take long for America's D&D hysteria to level up. The poorly reported facts of Dallas's real-life tragedy became confused and conflated with plot points from the movie, and soon James Dallas Egbert III was all but erased from his own story. What little remained of his memory was exploited by opportunists who weaponized it against the game he loved and the subculture it fostered, and it damn near destroyed them both.
0: A while back we did an episode called And I Will Go To Texas that featured a brief segment about the origins of the satanic panic. We promised we'd eventually do a full episode on it, so hey, promise kept. But before we get too far into
1: it, we want to play you a short clip from that segment so we can get everyone on the same page, whether you're caught up on our previous episodes or not. If you're new to the show, welcome. And if you've got a thing for mass hysteria, be sure to check out our episodes and I Will Go To Texas and The Man Who Killed Halloween. So how do we do this? Previously on TexArcana. Folks everywhere started locking their doors for the first time. They were warning their children not to talk to strangers and dreading whatever horrors lurked out there in the night. And those horrors were legion. The MPAA had lost its stranglehold on cinema, and for some, movies became too realistic and challenging to bear. Footage from Vietnam brought the war home and right to our living rooms. It was no longer a distant, glorified abstraction. It was raw, visceral, and terrifyingly real. All at once, the skeletons in our cultural closet came tumbling out like an avalanche into the daylight, turning our screens into mirrors, and America recoiled in horror at what it saw staring back.
0: All of that bled together and stirred in with the specter of death biting its time in some rusky missile silo. And it was only a matter of time before that cultural kerosene once again soaked the kindling beneath the witch's stake. Now it wasn't just the communist spies infiltrating American society. It was satanic sex cults, deranged butchers dressed as birthday clowns, bag-headed maniacs, or worse, attractive white businessmen turned serial killer. All of them monsters, staining our white picket fences in blood. Everywhere you looked, folks were trading God for incense and crystals. Kids were listening to bands like Twisted Sister and rolling dice with too many sides and women were abandoning their rightful place in the kitchen for meaningful careers, leaving their children in the care of total strangers. The blood-red writing was on the wall. The devil had come to suburbia, and his cultists were among us, masquerading as our neighbors, our colleagues, even our own daughters. And if the richest of Hollywood royalty weren't safe, no one was. This socio-spiritual cancer had to be exercised before it claimed us all. Someone had to speak up to speak the hard truths that the politicians, the pinkos, and the mainstream media didn't want you to hear. The witches had to burn. This is the current episode again. This is, we are back, this is now.
1: The clip has ended. The clip is now of the past. The clip isn't even a clip. There is no clip. Wait, is this
0: is this what producers are for? Nobody knows. I don't think anyone will ever know. Wait, is this the clip? In 1982, a 16-year-old in Virginia, Irving Bink Pullman died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the chest. His mother, Patricia Pulling, was, as any mother would be, devastated beyond measure. She just couldn't understand. He was such a good kid, a good student. She'd raised him right in a strict Christian home. He was loved and cared for and properly supervised at all times. She'd never once seen him express any warning sign or give her any reason to think there was something wrong. And a mother always knows, right? She rummaged through Bink's notebooks and belongings, desperately hoping to find some clue, anything that might help her make sense of what happened. And when she found a book and a character sheet for a game called Dungeons and Dragons, everything suddenly fell into place. The so-called player's handbook was teeming with grotesque and demonic images, instructions for casting magic spells, just page after page of unspeakable blasphemy. This was why. This was the motive that had eluded her for so long that it kept her awake every night. The devil, in all his trickery and temptation and lies, had taken him from her. Her bank, her only son, and with each turn of every ungodly page, her certainty only set itself deeper into stone. This book, this abomination, this game, it was more than just a motive. It was murder from that moment until her very last on this blessed earth comes, Patricia A. Pulling would dedicate herself to a righteous crusade. She would see to it that no parent, not one more mother, would ever again be forced to know this loss and pain. Lord God Almighty is her witness. She would exhaust every avenue and every ounce of everything in her until that wicked devil's game was banished back to the pits of hell from whence it came and eternally belonged. Or God help her, she would die trying and it was a vow she would keep.
1: Shortly after her son's death, Pulling filed a wrongful death suit against TSR Games for selling such a dangerous product to children. It was quickly thrown out of court, but Pulling was undaunted and relentless. In 1983, she partnered with some big name evangelical groups to found a nonprofit organization called Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons, better known by its snappy acronym, BAD. The group's first order of business was to lobby Congress for a nationwide ban on all fantasy role-playing games. And when that didn't pan out, they petitioned the Federal Trade Commission to require labels on the game's packaging, warning parents and potential buyers that
0: this product has resulted in a number of suicides and murders. And if it were up to them, they would have said a whole lot more than that. Dungeons and Dragons is a fantasy role-playing game which uses demonology, witchcraft, voodoo, murder, rape, blasphemy, suicide, assassination, insanity, sex perversion, homosexuality, prostitution, satanic-type rituals, gambling, barbarism, cannibalism, sadism, desecration, demon summoning, necromantics, divination, and other teachings.
1: That's a direct quote, by the way. Or at least it would be if we'd included all the misspellings and random use of all caps. Turns out that was a thing even back in the typewriter days. I mean, some things never change. <laughs> the FTC punted the labeling issue to the FCC, who promptly rejected it. So BAD changed course and started suing pretty much anyone they could think to sue, but to no avail. They even tried arguing that D&D legally had to be banned from schools because the game's flavor text and lore qualified it as an organized religion. Yeah, that didn't work either. Keep d in schools, y'all. With the federal government clearly unable or unwilling to take the matter seriously, BAD decided to take the message directly to the people. And once again, the muckrakers were all ears.
0: Soon, Pat Poling was popping up on TV screens across America, making guest appearances on Geraldo Donahue's 60 Minutes and more, selling Americans on the credibility and severity of the very real threat that devil worshippers pose to our Christian nation and Satanist, she told the cameras. Could be anywhere and anyone, even people you trust, people you love. And fantasy role-playing games weren't their only tool for recruitment. The entirety of pop culture was lousy with the devil and the God-fearing, tax-paying parents of America needed to stand up and speak their truth to Satan's power because we are not gonna take it. No, we are not gonna take it anymore.
1: Whoa, sick reference to D. Snyder's Senate testimony at the 1985 PMRC hearing, bro.
0: Thanks, bro. The TV appearances were a huge boon to BAD's visibility and support across the country, but the group also had a pretty solid ground game, too. They, and a growing number of like-minded groups, embarked on a firehose campaign of propaganda, filling schools, churches, businesses, and even jails with their pamphlets, flyers, and, of course, chick tracts. Jack Chick was a cartoonist and a darling of the burgeoning evangelical right. His hybrid of religious tracts and comic strips were printed in black and white, and about the size of a dollar bill, making them cheap to buy in bulk, and the art was stylish enough to catch the eye of pretty much anyone who happened to cross one. They were perfect for large-scale distribution or for just leaving around at the local arcade, comic store, and other dens of youthful depravity. When it came to anti-D&D propaganda, it didn't get any better than Chick's 1984 tract, Dark Dungeons.
1: That's not a compliment.
0: The comic tells the story of a young girl named Debbie who starts playing D&D with her friends and their dungeon master, who, for whatever reason, appears to be a 30-something adult woman who none of the kids seem to actually know. Anyway, long story short, the DM turns out to be an actual satanic witch and invites Debbie to join her coven. Debbie agrees, turns evil, drives her friend to commit suicide over the death of her character in the game, and then realizes the error of her ways and comes back home to Jesus. And it ends with her and her pastor triumphantly burning books in a churchyard bonfire. The tracts, like Chick himself, were also very explicit in their virulent disgust for anyone and everything that the moral majority, how should I put this, weren't cool with at the time, like Catholics, Jews, Muslims, atheists, LGBT folks, liberals, rock music, alcohol, and of course, Halloween. In all fairness, Chick did write a tract condemning the Salem witch trials for the deaths of innocent people, but only as a pretense to pin the blame on a black slave and accuse the Catholics of genocide. The full archive of the tracts is free at chick.com if you ever need a good cringe.
1: Anyway, the outreach campaign was working, and BAD's notoriety, numbers, and influence were growing fast. And so was the level of concern among psychologists and medical experts. Multiple studies and reports were produced all over the world that found absolutely no link between role-playing games and real-life violence. So B.A.D., being constitutionally incapable of turning the other cheek, funded studies of their own in an attempt to refute their detractors. But not even their own hand-picked, highly paid, and ethically impaired team of psychologists could produce a single study that could lend some semblance of scientific credibility to their cause. So B.A.D. gave up on science altogether and embraced their Christian fundamentalist roots. They enlisted the help of evangelical superstars like Pat Robertson and his 700 Club TV show. A platform that offered, shall we say, wider latitude when it came to things like veracity and plausibility. And like we know all too well today, when passionate zealots preach their uncompromising socio-political agenda to the overly credulous choir via a deeply uncritical media platform, things get weird. Bad representatives, allies, and affiliates alleged on air that D&D was designed to trigger schizophrenia and multiple personality disorder in kids, and that one of the primary mechanics of the game was real-life human sacrifice. Some claim the spells listed in the player's handbook were real, and actually worked because it definitely happened to someone's friend's nephew
0: at daycare or whatever. We'll get to the daycares later. Others even
1: claim that vampires and werewolves were actual living creatures that existed in the world and were, of course, under Satan's employ. With imaginations like that, I mean, these people should have been playing d and
0: Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, that's way more than enough delusional nonsense to thoroughly discredit bad and finally break the satanic panic spell over America. But you, my friend, couldn't possibly be more right while being so terribly, terribly wrong.
1: Buckle up y'all, this is gonna be a three-parter.
0: Patricia Pulling managed to find time between TV appearances to score a private investigator's license and somehow, practically overnight, become the go-to law enforcement consultant on RPG-related crime and various other matters of the occult. Defense attorneys hired her to act as an expert witness in criminal cases where the defendant invoked the D&D defense. Essentially arguing, the devil made me do it, but when I tried to avoid detection, I rolled a critical miss. The d and defense never succeeded in getting anybody off, except maybe Geraldo Rivera. Nope, nope. <laughs> You're right, that sounds so much worse when I say it out
1: loud. Anyway, it should probably go without saying that bullying was deeply unqualified for all the credibility she was receiving in both the criminal courts and the court of public opinion. She wasn't an expert on this stuff, or as far as we know, anything at all. It's almost like she was pretending to be something she wasn't. And hang on, I, I know there's a word for that. Role assumption? Play acting? It's right there on the tip of my tongue. I lost it. It didn't seem to matter anyway. Patricia Pulling was a concerned mother with a righteous axe to grind, and the other concerned parents of America were gleefully cheering her on likely while ransacking their kids' bedrooms for Merlin's W-2 and a stash of Satan's 20-sided gambling cubes.
0: It appears, Pulling told the cameras, that a significant amount of youngsters are having difficulty with separating fantasy from reality.
1: These days, psychologists call that textbook projection, but Pulling and her coalition of the concerned were on a mission, or a quest, a campaign, some might say to defeat the legions of darkness that lurked behind every corner and every 8th grade locker door.
0: And their work was far from done. As the panic reached a fever pitch, schools all over the country banned RPG games and genre books from their libraries, stores were shuttered, and indie publishers were forced out of business. The American Secret Service even raided the offices of Steve Jackson Games, best known these days for their popular Munchkin series. Apparently, the most elite government security agency in the world had it on good authority that the RPG game Cyberpunk was a nefarious recruitment tool for a network of teenage cybercriminals.
1: It's not.
0: With that level of intimidation, and now state involvement, it's hard to blame the folks at TSR Games for doing everything they could to appease or at least placate the Crusaders. They had earnest discussions about removing evil characters from the game altogether, though the idea was eventually scrapped. Instead, they volunteered their compliance with the comic Code Authority and purged any mention of demons from the second edition of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. To give you an idea of how serious the panic was and how long its impact lasted, TSR's self-censorship policy of no-devil stuff stayed in place until 1999. There's no question that TSR's writers and staff were willing to, and did, make a lot of creative concessions, but there was nothing they could offer that would ever be enough for bad. Compromise wasn't an option. After all, you don't make deals with the devil. As historian and professor Dr. David Waldron wrote,
1: Right-thinking people man the barricades, protecting social and moral order. School principals, police, conservative politicians, and churches all spoke out against RPGs. The complainant's high positions in the community gave weight to these claims, influencing public opinion.
0: And that created a feedback loop. The more people bought into the hysteria, the more public officials pandered to it, and the more they pandered to it, the more people bought into the hysteria. By the mid-1980s, and creator Gary Gygax was receiving so many death threats, he had to hire a 24-7 personal bodyguard. And then, there were the gamers themselves. Throughout the panic, they and other teen sci-fi fantasy and horror fans, computer nerds, artists, and kids who were just a little shy or different were subjected to a targeted and even institutionalized campaign of harassment, censorship, public humiliation, confiscation of property, estrangement from family and friends, bans from public and private places, suspension or expulsion from school, arrest, and even physical violence. And not just from their peers, but from police, teachers, ministers, and even their own parents. Some even reported those very same authority figures had planted drugs, porn, or satanic paraphernalia in their rooms or lockers in a twisted attempt to scare them straight, break up their gaming groups, or just make an example out of them.
1: And on the whole, these were good kids who got good grades, stayed out of trouble, and more often than not, already faced years of bullying at school. They had a hard enough time fitting in as it was. Now they found themselves, as Dr. Waldron put it, perceived as a major threat to the social order. And it was even worse for the not at all insignificant numbers of D&D players who grew up in fundamentalist households, many of whom were devout Christians themselves. Concerned teachers and church staff were known to call parents and regretfully inform them that their child was worshiping the devil. And I imagine that made for some difficult conversations when the kids got home from school that day. For a lot of them, it did real lasting damage to their relationships with their families for some, it ended those relationships forever because of a game. Teachers and students alike reportedly even accused quiet, nerdy kids in their classes of literally hexing them with black magic. Victims of those accusations claimed their classmates physically beat them while their teachers just stood by and watched. In one case, the teacher joined in. Of course, there were plenty of people who saw the panic clearly for what it was, madness. But the anti-Satan hysteria was so popular and so ubiquitous that even the most ardent skeptics felt increasingly pressured to just go along with it, and increasingly afraid of what might happen to them if they didn't. Sometimes the only difference between dissent and complicity is a simple majority. And once it fell upon the local law enforcement to play the role of Oyer and Terminer in a very real, very literal witch hunt, things got much, much worse. BAD started distributing pamphlets titled The Who, What, When, Where, and How of Teen Satanism to police departments across America for officers to use in training to deal with so-called suspected teenage occult criminals The Who of Teen Satanism, according to the pamphlet, was quote, "...adolescents from all walks of life, including over and underachievers, especially, but not always, those who seem intelligent, creative, curious, or rebellious." The How, of course, was role-playing games, occult movies and books, and what BAD referred to as black heavy metal music.
0: And if you think all that sounds a little vague, you're right. Pretty much any American teenager could conceivably fit the description of a satanic cultist. And in a way, that was the point. In the What We Can Do section of the pamphlet, aside from ironically stressing the importance of keeping an open mind and staying objective, it recommends asking suspects if they've ever read the Necronomicon, a non-existent book that H.P. Lovecraft made up for his short stories about nihilist fish people back in the 1920s. But more importantly, BAD advised police and civilians alike to quote, "...never assume that an individual is acting alone." If an individual is involved in satanic activity, he or she will deny a great deal to protect other members of the group as well as their satanic philosophy. In other words, denial might as well be an admission of guilt, and it comes with the implication that no matter how many suspected cultists you find, there's always more to root out. Bad was tearing pages straight from the Salem playbook and a good portion of their life hacks for the modern witch finder actually wormed their way into local law enforcement protocol. And that had a profound and frightening impact on the way police departments operated at the time and how some of them still operate to this day. As author Peter Bebergall wrote, quote, The police had this whole thing
1: about how teenagers were into the occult. In the court documents, they'd always make note that they listened to heavy metal. That was a key point. The music they listened to, it was believed, would make them more susceptible to whatever satanic conspiracy. It was a way of noting that the kids were
0: troubled. And to Americans, it seemed like a whole lot of kids were very troubled, indeed. In police departments across the country, they were recruiting so-called cult cops, specially trained officers that could identify and investigate crimes suspected of being connected to satanism, witchcraft, santeria, or voodoo. The Texas Department of Public Safety distributed handouts to police all over the state, essentially a checklist of, quote, 30 ways to determine if someone has been killed as a result of an occult ritual, and taking a cue from bad. The factors for determination were so vague that practically any crime, even smoking pot or spray-painting a dick on the side of a dumpster, could be classified as a satanic ritual. And while a lot of this can be chalked up to run-of-the-mill American ignorance, it's hard not to think that at least some of this vagueness and the blatant oversights were by design. After all, there was a lot of money to be made in the field of devil expertise, with no degree or experience required. And if pretty much anything can qualify as an occult crime, well, that ensures a certain level of job security.
1: The Texas DPS checklist was authored by two self-proclaimed Satanic investigators, a Baptist minister from Louisiana and a gym teacher from Texas. They may not have had any formal experience or expertise in, well, anything, but that didn't stop them from making a killing on the Satanic seminar circuit or acting as expert witness for state prosecutors or actively participating in police investigations. Again, a gym teacher. The seminars and workshops were frequent and often mandatory for police, CPS, caseworkers, prosecutors, and more, who were treated to hours-long slideshows of laughable misconceptions, obvious disinformation, urban legends, conspiracy theories, and just flat-out bad advice. Their mantra was,
0: If you think it happened, it probably did.
1: And unfortunately, the men and women of Texas law enforcement were taking notes. To quote Geraldo Rivera from his hit TV special, Exposing Satan's Underground,
0: This is not a Halloween fable. This is a real-life horror story.
1: But unlike Geraldo, we actually mean it.
0: To be continued. Tex Arcana is written and produced by us, Ryan Sheffield, and Brad Dewar,
1: recorded here in beautiful
0: Denton, Texas, home of black heavy metal music
1: bands like Doomfall, Infernal Legions of Mordor, Larry Legion, Big Hand, Big Knife, Rot of Obsidian, Oil Spill, Heavy Baby Sea Slugs, Friends Don't Let Friends Do Drugs,
0: and of course, our local legends and the best ever death metal band out of Denton, Satan's Fingers, The Killers, and The Hospital Bombers.
1: This show is made possible by Zach Wayne, Sean Treat, Voltron, Elizabeth Yang, and all of our other generous supporters on Patreon.
0: If you want to become a supporter of the show, please check out our page at patreon.com slash TexArcana. The more support we can get, the more Tex Arcana we can make.
1: Music by Whiskey Folk Ramblers.
0: We'll be back soon with part two. Thanks for listening, y'all.